1: Hello, everybody. This is Bob Wintermute. Welcome back to New Books of Military History.
0: This broadcast
1: is being recorded live at the 2014 Society of Military History's annual meeting in Kansas City, Missouri. And, in fact, right now we're looking outside on a sunny morning, the uh, National World War I Memorial rising atop the neighboring hill. Today's discussion is a bit of a departure from our normal format, since I'm joined by the co-authors of the New General Survey in American Military History, Ways of War, American Military History from the Colonial Era to the 21st Century. Hello to both Matthew Mealbauer and David O'Pierke. Hello, Bob. Hello, Bob. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for coming by this morning. An disclosure for everyone before we go any further. I know both Matt and Dave through our time as doctoral candidates at Temple University. Um, that said, before we start talking about the book itself, uh, would either of you like to go over your background? Tell us you know, where you're at now.
2: Um, Okay, thanks, Bob. Uh, Right now, I'm teaching at Manhattan College, which is a small Catholic school in in the Bronx, New York, actually. Um, Since graduating with my Ph.D. in 08, I've worked at West Point, and I've also worked for Austin Peay State University, Um, much of the time teaching military history courses, including graduate courses for Austin Peay. Um, Much of the past few years, I've been taking up writing this textbook with Dave, And before going back to my Ph.D., um, I worked a number of years in New York in the financial information industry, and I also have a master's in international studies.
0: And I'm currently teaching at Rogers State University in Claremore, Oklahoma. And before that, for nearly four years, I was the command historian at the U.S. Army Engineer School. And it was on nights and weekends that I worked on on this book uh, with Matt, and before that, I did a stint at uh, Ball State University as a business assistant professor. And so now I've finally landed the tenure track job, which of course is the Holy Grail.
1: <laughs> before we start talking about the book itself, um, I'd like to get a few words from you guys about the conference and the setting itself. I mean, many of our listeners are, are, are either unaware or unfamiliar with the full scope of the society and its activities. Yeah. Okay, maybe your thoughts first.
0: All right. Uh, well, the Society for Military History has uh, been in existence for uh, 80 or 90 years. It's changed its name over uh, over time. It has its own pro- professional journal, which is really the flagship journal in the field, Journal of Military History. And it has uh, 2,500 members uh, that are, you know, divided among uh, pure academics, uh active-duty military, and then government historians, uh, with a, a good smattering of, of graduate student members also.
2: Matt, would have to add to that? Um, one of the things I, I've come to appreciate about the society with its annual conferences is that uh, it always ends up in places where there are a number of institutions with strong backgrounds in military history. Uh, this year it's in Kansas City. Uh, one of the main hosts is the Commandal Staff College, but another, which with I had very little familiarity, being more of an early Americanist, is uh, this beautiful World War I uh, museum, mm-hmm. which is be- uh, absolutely beautiful and stunning, and I didn't had no idea it was even here. Um, so that's one of the neat things about society in terms of exposing us to interesting institutions uh, for the promotion and the uh, doing of military history that we might not otherwise know about.
1: Well, that's, again, you know, you're right hitting upon the issue of the museum or, you know, the point of the museum being nearby. I mean, many of our listeners consume military history not only through books but also through going into uh, traditional public history exhibits like we would have at the museum or through living history or through other venues. Um, you know, and on the point of the museum, I mean, is, is there anything, you know, what, what does it represent historically, you think? I mean, how does it serve
2: best the community as a guardian of its memory? Well, mostly to inform people that, well, then this event occurred, World War I, and hopefully. And we seem to, what's ironic is here we are, a group of historians, and we love history and we study it. And yet, in wider society, sometimes um, uh, the capacity for children to learn about history does not seem to be all that strong in various primary, secondary situations. So, these institutions are great for you know, providing alternative means to get people interested in history and tell them about the significance. Um, if people don't want to read, or of time, they can go with something that's physical and see interesting artifacts and objects like tanks and guns, hopefully, other things too, uniforms. Often, people are fascinated by the material aspects of history, and that speaks to people more than, than reading. Um, however, people get interested in history is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm.
0: I also think, in terms of World War One, you know, the last living veteran has has passed fairly recently, but there's no direct connection uh, with the current generation or the current, um, you know, up, up and coming generations with the First World War. So um, museums like the World War One Memorial here in Kansas City are able to allow uh, students and young people to make a connection and appreciate. Uh, what uh, what it would have been like to some degree to have lived at that time to have seen combat and then to have come home after combat right. family perspectives, a variety of things and it really is a, a well done uh, just fantastic museum.
1: yeah I mean it, it's an impressive
0: collection of
1: cultural, political and of course military artifacts and you, you, I agree with both of you about how it is important to have such a tool to connect, um, young generations, and even, even our generation, you know, with with this event that happened 100 years ago. And it is fitting, of course, in 2014, we're at a place like this to, to host a conference. I don't think that's an accident. <laughs> but Let's turn to the book. You know, a survey treatment in this day of, you know, very <coughs> specialized monographs seems to run against the norm. What was your reasoning behind doing it? I mean, of course, you know, that's the idea of reaching out creating a tool for instructors and students, uh, which this book certainly does. But what about for the general reader, you know, the type of person who would be listening to our podcast?
2: Well, getting to your reason for why I did it, um, it's somewhat very personal in terms of when I went back to get my degree, I really wanted to teach at the college level. I loved history. I wanted to talk about ideas, about how to understand history, and military history, too. And I had always hoped, back when we were at Temple, that one day I might get the chance to write the textbook in the field. Um, and I always assumed back then that it would happen, if I ever got the opportunity, it would happen at the end of my career. And instead, it happened towards the beginning. Um, that said, At the time, I taught a lot of military history, and so I had this background. I wanted the chance to be able to present it in a meaningful fashion. And Dave was great, and he was wonderful coming on board after we got got the contract. The brother just helped me out with this, specifically with this wonderful chapter on the 20th century. Um, In terms of a survey, it's an art to write this. It's different. You have to be very broad, and yet you can't talk about everything. So you have to present some basic information, a basic narrative that students can follow. And you also want to interject ideas to allow students to make sense of the history in terms of uh, levels of warfare, strategy, operations, and tactics. On the other side, all the wonderful ideas that have come out of war and society studies over the past couple of years. And our challenge is to try and integrate that into a meaningful text. And uh, I, I rushed the challenge, and I went after it, and hopefully people think it's uh, so relatively
0: successful. Dave? Uh, I was uh, brought on a few months into the project to cover down on the 20th century chapters. And having taught a lot of military history and a lot of uh, uh, general American history and such, I looked at it as a challenge to try to conceptualize, as Matt has said, the, kind of blend the, the breadth of the project and then find the right uh, in-depth case studies to illustrate the points that we're making about recurring themes or you know case studies, or and in fact during the during the, the chapters on, on the conflicts to have enough operational military history to appeal to people who want to read that, whether it's students or the general mm-hmm. public. But then weave in social and cultural and other diplomatic and, and logistical aspects. The other thing I viewed this as, as as we were writing it, it becomes a very very long 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 encyclopedia entry on some levels. Not that that makes it bad. It's just that's, that's kind right. of what it has to be. It has to have the basic information. Right. And so I guess
1: another challenge then is to present it in a fashion that makes it not only accessible for students, but interesting for the, the general reader, you know, the general public.
2: Yes, yeah, so you have to hold someone's attention. And we try to write it in a manner that hold people's attention while also addressing some of these broader issues and their relevance and how to understand them or how, to, how they help explain history. Okay. You know, the book begins with a short introduction,
1: you know, it's rather, actually rather boldness intent, I think. I mean, you guys set out to define some of the key points and, and caveats about military history, you know, both as a craft, but also as a, as a practice, you know, and, and really talk about the types of history that we as, as scholars and authors who specialize in the field, you know, we confront and create. My question is, and this isn't a critique, but again, a point for, for you know, discussion, you know, doesn't this run the risk maybe of distracting the reader as much as informing them?
2: For me, the introduction is just to introduce a couple of key terms and ideas. Right. And having done that, then those key terms and ideas help the reader understand what comes later. Right. Um, one of the things in the past that we realized I, we should have an introduction is that I had undergraduates who did not know the difference between a war and a battle. So I figured, okay, if we're going to write this survey in U.S. military history, American military history, we should set up some very basic terms, like what is a war, mm-hmm. what is a battle, uh, what is a siege. Um, we should also throw, uh, discuss some of the terms that people hear when discussing military affairs and f- history, such as you know levels of warfare, strategy, operations, tactics, mm-hmm. especially because strategy, that word, has a much broader meaning in English, the English language, but something that's relatively specific when you're talking about military affairs. So I want to discuss the relationship to those different levels of warfare. And I also want to talk about, you know, what is high-intensity warfare, what is low-intensity, what's the difference. And also throw out some of the terms. For example, what we know as low-intensity warfare today is often called partisan warfare or guerrilla, et cetera, irregular, things of that nature. So I want to make sure we got those terms out so that someone new to the study of military history would have them and be able to understand what we wrote about in the following 15 chapters um I also want to point out that, you know, the Warren Society field, that's something we're going to discuss. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the you know, we look at the fields traditionally being more operational, war et etc. And a lot of this book is kind of like it just to get the basic terms and the fence out. But we're trying to incorporate some of the newer War in Society right. uh, writings and we wanna identify that in the introduction, say that's gonna be there. And we talk a little bit about historiography. Um, and I can let Dave talk a little bit about right. that, or we can talk about that later if you wish. Oh.
0: Yeah, um, um, I think the introduction uh, is is a decent length. It's just long enough to be detailed, but not too long to you know bog someone down. But we all we, we wanted to talk about historiography. You know, uh, you know, um, um, give credit to Professor Russell Weigley for you know conceptualizing an American way of war. But the but we also wanted to show that we had left. We were standing on the shoulders of several scholars right. across the board, whether it's Wigley or Peter Karsten or John Grenier, a variety of authors, and we wanted to leave the footprints in the sand right. of of some of the a few of the authors that have helped us in our own careers right. learn about and conceptualize the past.
1: Well, that's what people forget about is that, you know we're not isolated authors who exist on our own coming up with these great ideas. You know, we
2: are building
1: upon a legacy of
2: thought that stretches back
1: generations.
2: Especially in the survey text. Um, even when we write our own research monographs, we give credit to the people who came before us. Right. But in something like this, the survey, we are not really advancing anything new. Our own thought here. Our job here is to take what's already out there, what's already been written, and sort of condense it, make it comprehensible to someone new to the field or someone trying to get a little more depth. And we want to give credit where we can. Now, in a textbook like this, we don't have footnotes or citations like you do in a monograph. But we have uh, shorter bibliographies at the end of the, uh, each chapter uh, with, for the people who had the greater impact on either our thinking or have the greater Greater impacts on the topics dealt with the chapter, and then we have extended bibliographies on the companion website to this, so that people who really want to delve down into to your topic can do so. Great, great. <clears throat> you, know, you you mentioned Russell Weigley today. You know, I, I would
1: be remiss if I didn't note our tie in this textbook to that earlier work of his, *An American Way of War*. Um, you know, when the book appears for the first time in 1973, it completely reimagined. How the military past should be taught and understood, right? I mean it's you know conceptualizing war as a cultural phenomenon, you know, accruing characteristics in its pursuit that are related specifically to the social context of its participants. Now here's, here's the, the so what question maybe you know what does your book add to or
2: subtract from that earlier work? The title reflects a couple of different. Ideas here. One is it's partially an homage to yeah. Russell Wiley and the American Way War. Right. I mean, we are being all temple students. But it also reflects the fact that his original thesis in the American Wave War, you know, there was American Way War where Americans, if they had the resources, liked to fight re- short, resource intensive wars a la the Union in the Civil War and in World War II. You know, that's the broad, that's the simplifying, that's the broad thesis. Yeah. Um, and that thesis. Was prominent and accepted and powerful for about 20 years, mm-hmm. but that people have been sort of going criticizing that for the past 20 years. Right. And people have been arguing that there really isn't a single American way of war. People have been identifying different ways of war in American history, be it uh, Brian Lynn, uh, John Grenier, Adrian Lewis. And so the title reflects the fact that we are, historians are recognizing different types of war-making in American history depending upon the time
0: frame. Right. I I think uh, the other thing is that ways of war uh, will include not just military uh, ways of thinking, annihilation versus attrition. Ways of war will also be uh, affected by terrain, Mm -hmm. will be affected by uh, economic power, will be affected by the desire to create a particular type of army or particular yeah. type of officer. And that evolves throughout American military right. history. One of the things, one of the divisions in our book is what might be called uh, the militia period, mm-hmm. uh, albeit there was conscription in the Civil War, but that runs up to World War One, And then we have the conscription period, World War I through Vietnam. And we have the all-volunteer force more recently. And so that also affects a way of war. If you've got conscripts, militia, volunteers, you need to, the the leadership of the nation needed to conceptualize how to fight, and sometimes there's a little rocky transition here and there. Oh, sure, sure. I mean, again, it's a cultural uh, transition, cultural change. You know, but I want to
1: take devil's advocate side here, too, though, because there are people criticize this way of war thesis, right? I mean, they argue that, you know, this whole business of, you know, national or ethnic ways of war, cultural ways of war is all overdone. I mean, in the end, war is war. You know, it's organized violence undertaken by the state or by non-government organizations or equivalents for political ends. Does this
2: book refute that? Does it stand in the face of that? Uh, actually, it sort of agrees in terms of what we're trying to show is that, depending upon where you look in American history, there's a sort of a, a way people are making war in American history, uh-huh. and we try and identify that and give uh, students and readers some context for understanding how it came about. That's part of the goal of the book. And it does change over time, be it the colonial era, the uh, era of the early republic, the Civil War, late 19th century, 20th century. So, um, as far as if you read the book, the idea is that there isn't a monolithic American way of war that spans all of American history. Americans make wars in different ways at different times. and Hopefully the book will help demonstrate that.
0: Okay. And, well, in terms of uh, the broader conceptualization of ways of war, when Professor Wigley brought this book out, he did cause really what amounts to a paradigm shift in conceptualizing the, the ways Americans fight. My answer to to the devil's advocate or the naysayers is if you're going to engage Russell Wigley on the ways of war, you actually have to concede some of the categories that they might actually exist so you can kind of deny them it's in order to refute him his thesis you have to engage it you have to engage it in in, in similar terms so yes you can check off this or that and the other Spanish-American War doesn't fit Vietnam is where things broke down but there's still those patterns there but they change and and shift over time okay okay well you know obviously this is a very complex multi-layered work
1: you know um I'd be, I'd be really pedantic if I tried to go through a chapter-by-chapter breakdown. And uh, I don't think our, our, our listeners would expect that. I hope I would hope not. But there are a few things that stand out in the individual chapters that I'm keen to explore more thoroughly. Um, and I'll give you both an opportunity to respond. Although I recognize that, Matt, you're primarily responsible for the early chapters. Dave, you take on the 20th century. Uh, but, again, if you both have feedback, you'd like to share, by all means, do you know, we can offer that, you know. For example, Matt, you present a very structured and detailed narrative of the early colonial period. Uh, more specifically, those struggles undertaken by the individual colonies for survival in the 17th century. Yeah, you know, could I be correct, and or should I even consider placing this contest as much in the context of a long war of ethnic cleansing? as of, say, colonial expansion?
2: Ethnic cleansing. Well, you know, that's a term that comes out of late 20th century. Um, and my, you know, my background's more 17th. So to put it in sort of the context of the era... Well, if not ethnic like cleansing, then maybe race war or, or well, some other... what's interesting is that when, you know, there's a whole scholarship out there about what the English thought of Native Americans before they came over and how they coming over... And there's sort of this dichotomy that a lot of scholars recognize, that some people looked at Native Americans as being savage and brutal. Others sort of depicted them as being childlike and innocent, and only had to, all the English had to do was go over there and introduce them to Christianity and English culture, and they'd gladly follow English ways, et cetera, and so forth. It's kind of a dichotomy. Um, certainly, a lot of, a lot of the who go over there don't, are hoping not to fight Native Americans, but it kind of depends upon the colony. Uh, for example, Virginia is a little bit different from New England. In Virginia, you have people who are arriving for commercial ends, uh, want Native Americans to assist them, and when they don't, things start to break down. I sort of chronicle that in uh, Virginia. In New England, uh, the earliest immigrants are mostly Puritan, and there's and actually the first couple of years, things are generally fairly peaceful, and then you have the issue of the Pequot War, which is actually... I talk about it. it's, it's one of my my research special. It's actually quite complex, and I have to simplify it for the purposes of the book. Um, and Dave's laughing because yeah, we we all whenever we talk about it, our own research projects, we always have to simplify it because uh-huh. I, I think we want to. Um, so by trying to identify a little bit about the perspectives of both sides, both English and Native American, and what led to conflict, and also how they made war, in that first chapter. I talk about sort of the military revolution that's been affecting Western Europe and how it's affecting European armies and what aspects of that will come over to North America with the migrants. Not all of them do. Well, many don't. Um, I also talk about sort of Native American sides and how they were making war at the time. And then what, one of the things I try and explore both in that chapter and the next is how each side sort of modifies or may have waken war in response
0: to fighting a culturally different enemy. Well, I I think what is is good about, uh, or what is very good about what Matt's done in the first couple of chapters of the book is that he does contextualize these ways of war on the North American continent with what's happening in Europe, the military revolution and some of the new advances in technology. I think that's very, very important because I think sometimes American historians are American-centric and they just think things were invented here, whereas... There is a give-and-take, uh, whether it's cultural, technological, or military, a give-and-take with the home country. Now, is that just
1: purely a case of imposing European ideas in the New World, or is that part of a broader Atlantic exchange?
0: I think an exchange is probably the right way to put it. I I will defer to, to Matt for the you know uh, the details or the, the, the specific definitions, but it's, it's an evolution. There's a give-and-take. There's... Uh, there's a gray area where each side is going to take a little bit, bring a little bit from the old world, learn a little bit in the new world, and as Matt says, each side will adapt uh, as they react to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, there's certainly
2: very much a cultural exchange going on mm-hmm. on the Atlantic seaboard of North America, mm-hmm. and you know, while part of it's ideas and materials and goods, and part of it is how different people make war. Right. Yeah. Um, you do not see a lot of the war making make it back to Europe. There's actually some people at some point have made that argument about uh, fighting the first North America might have affected European armies. But actually, there's as, as I understand it, there's a tradition of sort of light infantry warfare in Europe on its own. Right. Um, and I'll let other scholars who are more specialists that address that issue. But certainly, as for settlers who come over here, they have to learn to fight an enemy different than what uh, they were used to back in Europe. In terms of, uh, in Europe, warfare is moving to more Mm -hmm. high-intensity, conventional types of war, very Mm -hmm. resource-intensive, very bloody. Native Americans, their warfare isn't as bloody, but it's more low-intensity, relies much more on surprise, use of terrain. And for settlers to come over here, they have to appreciate the fact that that's how Native Americans fight. Mm -hmm. And they will develop their own ways of countering that. They won't, often they will not be as tactically proficient as Native American warriors, but they'll adopt operational answers, such as trying to find Native American towns and crops and destroy them. And by right. doing that, you know, sort of punish the Americans enough so that they might want to negotiate and end hostilities.
1: Okay. You know, what point do these different colonies? Because, you know, there's no unified sense of identity on the eastern seaboard. At um, what point do these, these colonies drive common cause before the revolution, which everyone presumes?
2: Uh, I would have to argue, well, even you can argue that doesn't quite happen even before the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, the, my second chapter is called Wars Imperial and Regional right. to address this issue that um, after 1689, many of the wars that occur in North America are reflections of wars that have begun in Europe. Right. Although this French-Indian war actually starts, and also the War of Jenkins here, the right. war of Conflict starts on this side, and after about the other. Right. But the point is, even those wars were... France and England are fighting each other, or uh, Britain and Spain. Um, Often, local colonies fight their own little wars. New England's fighting New France. Maybe New York is involved. Uh, But South Carolina is fighting Spanish Florida. Right. And so it's really these individual colonies working on their own with their neighbors, and they don't have a lot of help or support from Britain until the French-Indian and War. And that's the war where the, the Britain... Uh, courtesy of William Pitt especially, make a concerted commitment to put troops and resources into North America right. to defeat the French.
1: So so in the absence of this unifying identity,
2: or this unified thing,
1: what is it that makes an American way of war in the pre-revolutionary period?
2: Well, you know, there's John Grenier's thesis about uh, extirp- extirpative warfare, uh, colonists going out. Uh, being, you know, adopting aspects of Native American tactics like surprise and ambush uh, but more greater leverage of lethality uh, and that works so long as the enemy is of the settlers are Native Americans but especially French and Indian War well, now you're seeing regular troops fighting each other right. and so you're seeing different types of warfare in the same conflict in the seven years of French and Indian War which is one of the things I find fascinating about that conflict Um, And one of the things the British are trying to figure out is, you know, a lot of high officers like Braddock, et cetera, Loudoun, et cetera, you know, they're used to European conventional warfare, and they kind of disparage um, sort of low-intensity conflict of the North American sort. Mm -hmm. Other uh, British officers are coming to appreciate that as the war goes on and trying to work with or develop light units to fight that type of combat.
1: We'll move on a little bit further, and we're going to say in this earlier period, um, you know, but again, desire to, to cover different areas in the narrative. You know, we look at, you, you look at some detail at the transition between the Continental Army to the institution as codified in the Military Peace Establishment Act of 1802. Um, what, would you, what would you both consider to be the most significant challenge to the Republic and its military establishment at that time? You know, not just external, but internal as well.
0: Well, I, I think in the early Republic era, uh, there's there's going to be a search for an identity, the U.S. Army in particular, an identity. Is it going to uh, be a frontier force to deal with the Native Americans? Is it going to be set up to defend against future European incursions? And also with the establishment of West Point, you have uh, the military academy at West Point, you have uh rise of... Um, officer education where you know I would I think personally that West Point created engineers mm-hmm. that learned to be soldiers and officers out in the field right. so you have so you've got these professional soldiers who are trained as engineers whether they go engineer branch or not and so I think there's I think there's a a, a struggle for identity that's uh, politically driven uh, Federalists versus uh, uh, the Jeffersonians and a variety of things that's just off the top of my head a struggle for identity
2: That's pretty good for off the top of your head, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just to harp on one of the things you mentioned, um, what people need to understand is the creation of permanent U.S. military institutions Mm -hmm. occur in a very highly charged overt political atmosphere. Uh, After the past, we look at the past of the Constitution, we celebrate, hey, we got the Constitution. But that was a compromise, but after 1789 people started to figure out how to actually go about creating that government of the Constitution, how powerful it should be. And so for Federalists, they wanted a slightly more powerful government. And people who were anti-Federalists, many of which become Democratic-Republicans, are very wary of strong centralized power and very wary of standing army, a la what happened with the American Revolution and the British. Um, and tensions are brewing in the 1790s between Federalists and Repo- Democratic Republicans, a lot, it, a lot of that stems from tensions stemming from the French uh, Revolutionary Wars and how and how American gets kind of, America gets kind of uh, roped into um, the problems the U.S. deals with the trade with France and Britain, uh, the Quasi War, that type of thing, um, and tensions are growing at the end of the 1790s uh, when. President John Adams finds a way to negotiate a peace at the end of the Quasi-War. And during the Quasi-War, the federalists, are, the federalists are being most overt in terms of trying to pass laws that seem to repress American liberties, at least to Democratic Republicans. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone talks about the Alien Sedition Acts. That's the obvious thing everyone wants to talk about. But people don't talk about the Rect tax of 1798, usually. Sometimes they do. Specialists do. Mm-hmm. Often you don't see it in the survey course. Uh, the Federalists also created a whole bunch of armies, different armies. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them on paper, but one Alexander Hamilton started to assign commissions to, and oddly enough, the commissions went to highly regarded Federalists. Mm. Now that is, the kibosh is put on that through Adams and the, uh, the Convention of eighteen hundred, after this peace. But then, the key thing here is the election of 1800s, which was a peaceful transition of power to a new political party. And pe- people were wary of political parties back then. Mm-hmm. There no the the tradition didn't exist then as this day that if you're not in power, you can criticize the government, and that doesn't mean you want to overthrow the government. Mm-hmm. People didn't quite know what to make of these parties back then. So when Jefferson comes to power, and does peacefully, a lot of people sign, breathe easy, okay, it was a peaceful transition of power. But then Jefferson's uh, task was to take you know, this highly Federalist army, because most officers were Federalists, and sort of make it more politically neutral, sort of, um, in the act that you mentioned, the Peace Establishment Act of 1802, People look at it as Jefferson reducing the size of the army. Well, mostly what he's reducing are officers, mm-hmm. and he's getting rid of the rabid Federalists. Right. But he also creates a few new officer billets, especially for what would now be called a second lieutenant, and appoints a few Republicans. One of the reasons for the creation of the Corps of Engineers is that the president makes direct appointments to uh, therefore the officers, and so he can put Republicans in there. So he's not switching uh, Federalist military establishment to a Republican one. He's making it a little more politically neutral. Right. Um. And I'm drawing upon wonderful scholarship here from uh, Richard Cohn, uh, as well as Theodore Mm Crackle, and there's a whole bunch. And if you look at the bibliography, there are all these wonderful books that really nicely address that issue. Mm -hmm. And after 1800, we now have... David mentioned, you know, what will the end of the army be? Because of the Indian Wars in the Northwest in the Mm -hmm. early 1790s. Um, That, after those are done, with the Treaty of Greenville in 1795... Uh, that really establishes the purpose of the peacetime army as a federal constabulary de- uh, on the frontiers, tro- hopefully trying to maintain peace and sometimes fighting Native American groups.
1: Okay. Uh, let's go up to the Civil War. Okay, okay. keeping it, keeping it moving. You know, okay. and, and here we can, here we can take on directly Russell Wigley's, um key considerations regarding the conflict. You know, I'm thinking specifically his presentation of Ulysses Grant as an underappreciated or misunderstood tactician by later historians, versus Lee's, you know, how he portrays Robert E. Lee as a profligate spender of human life in pursuit of this, you know, all-important but chimeric, decisive battle. Um, How do you guys come down to this? Or how how does the book,
2: rather, assume this? Okay. Yeah, I, I wrote the two Civil War chapters, but Dave, if you want to interject anything before I start going on, <laughs> feel free. Please do. I'll, I'll, come, <laughs> Please back. I'll come back. Um, there's no short of scholarship on the Civil War. Absolutely we not. So and so forth. Um, one of the things, we, we do look at people like Lee and Grant because they're just so prominent, and that those are the names that people have heard of. And so we have to dress them, and they should be dressed. Uh, one of the things we try and do, though, at least I, do, I try and do with Lee and Grant and others is, look at what they're trying to accomplish strategically in the operations to accomplish the strategic goals. Um, Again, drawing upon all sorts of scholarship on the Civil War, uh, Lee had a concern that that in a long war, the Confederacy may not prevail. Um, And hence, the best chance for the Confederacy to win, period, would be to win quickly. And this explains his attempted invasion in 1862, which is turned back in Antietam, and then the Gettysburg campaign a year later. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was his particular strategic bet. There are other people who might have argued differently, and who did, but Lee was the one who achieved, who actually won the battles, who demonstrated operational and tactical ability, and hence his views by the middle of the war were well respected. But at the same
1: time, these views,
2: widely argued, leads Mm -hmm. to south on the path of destruction, inadvertently. Well... Lee fails in his yeah. objective in trying to win a short war, right. and hence that, for, that uh, goes to the argument that, okay, the Union would win a long war. But uh, there's a danger there mm-hmm. in that we cannot simply assume the Union would w- win in a long war because even though the Union had material advantages, the Union still has to have the will mm-hmm. to prosecute the war and endure the pain and suffering. To, as well as inflict pain suffering upon the South. Right. Uh, we can talk about more recent wars, I'm sure Dave can talk about this, where the U.S. had a material preponderance over an enemy and yet did not sort of pursue its objectives to a level of victory that some argued was desirable. Um, my point now, Lincoln is important there, and I try and talk a little bit about him. I try and talk about the fact that strategic ideas are changing in the Civil War, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of in the Union. This is where Grant really comes to the fore, because Grant's his vision of strategy was not actually battle-centric. There's more, okay, let's use these resources to nullify the ability of Confederate armies to move mm-hmm. and harm, you know, and move and uh, thereby resist the Union and sort of undermine it. This was tied to, later on, destruction of resources, a uh, Sherman Atlanta. Um, but for Sherman, at the end, he realizes that we the Union has preponderance of manpower and resources, and here's how we use them. We have to use them simultaneously, and really. Start, and his one idea was to you know keep Lee at Petersburg while Sherman advanced, impose more death and destruction to undermining the southern and Confederate will
0: to keep fighting, right. which ultimately happens in the spring of 1865. Dave, yeah. uh, just kind of um, uh, some some general comments. One of the things that having uh, Taught this book this semester now, and one of the things that I'm always impressed by Grant is how versatile he really was. Right, he is uh, he is often portrayed, and with some legitimacy, as the you know the bloody general, the 1864 campaigns and all that, where he's you know in Cold Harbor basically you know uh, bleeding uh, bleeding uh, uh, Lee to death and bleeding himself to and, the uh, Union Army to death. Yeah, bleeding yeah. the Union Army to death, but. He, he had a very good strategic vision. He showed in the Vicksburg campaign, the extended Vicksburg campaign, his ability to maneuver and to solve problems and then to uh, you know, eventually uh, carry off a siege, albeit with some bloody frontal assaults. He, he, he mm-hmm. shows himself to be versatile, and he finds out what works. He was a very pragmatic commander. And so that's just some, some general comments that I think are brought out in the book. Oh, just one other thing I just wanted to add about, you know, in terms of we talk about tactics and strategies
2: and so forth, the Civil War, we also make a, a point, especially since we're devoting two chapters to it, to talk about sort of larger social cultural mm-hmm. issues. And one thing is I make a point of, courtesy of some of the reviewers who sort of pointed out I should be doing this, is uh, give a little attention to the idea of the large, great amount of death that American society had to do had to deal with, and here I'm drawing upon Drew Kaplan's spouse suffering, and that's some of the more recent scholarship. That is, but I it's again, it's, it was yeah. an opportunity to bring in some of these war and society approaches right. to show the you know the greater social and cultural impact mm-hmm. of this great conflagration. Right, right.
1: right. That's important too. I mean, the idea that again, in a survey text like this, it's as much a, an obligation of the authors. In this case, you guys to address that new scholarship and present it in, in a digestible format for undergraduates or for general buff readers who otherwise, you know, may not have encountered it before. And, you know, that's a benefit here. That's, that's a plus for this book. Um, and it's, it's something to caution that anybody looking to write a survey might could take up, you know, at the very beginning of the project. You know, as we, as we look at the First World War in the narrative, you know, I notice themes that you raise, you know, like from David Kennedy and others about this small progressive army being thrust into a conflict international conflict it was ill prepared for. And fair enough. Okay, that's you know, so that's legitimate, you know. Um, but again for a new survey, you know, what other historiography informs your position in this chapter?
0: This is one of those chapters where I do like, you know, the sort of grand old men of uh, of World War I, uh, the likes of uh, John Whitley Chambers and Edward M. Kaufman and David Kennedy, those sort of classic works that kind of set up the basic narrative, the conventional wisdom about it. But I also want to bring in uh, perspectives such as uh, Chad Williams' Torchbearers of Democracy, and there's several other books that are coming about out or have been coming out about uh, African Americans in the war, and looking how this war... World War One ends up being this first war, mostly drawn for conscription, and then that will set the stage for future conflicts uh, mm-hmm. and also help to create a new American military identity. Uh, how, especially the Army, how it would see itself uh, moving beyond having been this frontier force that spins up for the Spanish-American War, but then decline, uh, then you know, very much demobilizes mm-hmm. thereafter. And then World War I itself uh, becomes a case study in what not to do in many ways mm-hmm. that and the National Defense Act of 1920 and so on will set up for the, uh, uh, for the interwar period and future conflicts right. thereafter.
1: Right, there's a lot of themes there. I mean, it's, it's a, lot, a lot of Granico there. Uh, I mean, it seems like one of the things you're leading off with too is the idea of the First World War really being one about shaping American identity.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not, not just the uh, of the soldiers, but of. Of American identity as a whole, uh, World War One. It's World War One is the first really big war in which the United States will, you know, move away from Washington's farewell address and become entangled in mm-hmm. in, in, in European conflicts, mm-hmm. and then also World War One becomes uh, the war to to degree the Spanish American War is also, but not on the scale where the United States sees itself as the you know the moral uh, purifier, the you know. The democracy protector and, and so on, uh, a way in which to export uh, our way of life to others, mm-hmm. and of course, I uh, mean, Frank Inkovich has uh, has made that argument in terms of uh, Wilsonian influence ever since Wilson in mm-hmm. and the uh, 19 uh, teens in World War One.
2: Yes, uh, one of the things I really loved about Dave's chapter here is the fact that the second half is World War One, but the first half looks at things like the uh, the root reforms mm-hmm. and what is the American military doing mm-hmm. in the 15 uh, in the years from 1902 to 1917 mm-hmm. uh, the army with the root reforms but also uh, you know Dave's uh, something a marine historian that's mm-hmm. where he's cut his teeth and he has this wonderful little section of what the Marines are doing in Latin America oh yeah and yeah. these are the things that the American military is used to before it enters into this huge war, mm-hmm. uh, beyond a scale that anyone's ever seen before, the Civil War came somewhat close, where right. even this scale here is not that much bigger, and even even though the U.S. participation will be relatively short compared to the European powers, it's a big challenge. Absolutely. And Dave does a very nice job of detailing that challenge, that shift mm-hmm. that civilian and military leaders have to make. From an progressive yet imperial army, mm-hmm. or military posture,
0: to this Progressive yet global posture, yes. expeditionary and, yeah. posture. Yeah, thank yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Which that word goes in and out of favor depending upon you know the the political climate. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's, let's let's move on to the next one. You know, the the, the other
1: big one in in the twentieth century. And you know, I noticed that in the twenty the Second World War narrative, you pay a lot of attention, careful attention to the home front, which is certainly appropriate. Does this reflect the shift, maybe, in the historiography, or is the shift in the very mindset of what the American way of war is? The short answer
0: is yes. (laughs) (laughs) I will call it that. (laughs) The short answer is yes. Obviously, in the last 20 to 25 years, there have been a lot of very good books detailing the home front and World War II, and also... Uh, the integration of women and African-Americans and other sort of non-Caucasians into the military. I'm thinking of uh, Lisa Myers creating G.I. Jane. Uh, and then there's some classic works like Richard Pollenberg's War and Society. I think over the time of teaching this course, I believe that there needs to, there needs to be attention to the home front because... Mm-hmm. World War II was uh, arguably one of the closest big conflicts that we've had and that the world's had that's come to total war. And if you're going to think of it as a nearly total war, let's call it that, then you've got to deal with the home front because everybody com- is supporting the combat effort from, you know, the uh, the iconic Rosie to River, which you also welded, by the way. You also, yeah, and then, the, uh, the you know, the little boy, little seven-year-old boy or whatever, pulling his radio flyer wagon down the street collecting metal. All this is coming together.
1: Well, look, I want to call you out on something, because you, you, you say everyone's supporting the war. But I think it's also, you know, a lot of a lot of the think people like Michael C.C. C. Adams that points out, well, you know, the good war wasn't all that good for everybody. And there were large swaths of the country or large, large groups of the population who either were ambivalent about the war or, or didn't
0: support it. There were certainly... Uh, problems uh, that were caused, uh, just like World War One was the war to make the world safe for democracy. But at home, you had all sorts of censorship and all sorts of essentially, the U.S. government became pretty close to a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Same thing in World War Two. So there were uh, there were problems. There were problems with uh, facing the Japanese Americans, for example, where you had had a you know blanket labeling of a particular racial or in this case racial. It could have been an ethnic group. Uh, as uh, somehow a threat, and uh, because they look different, I mean, then there would have been a, legis- I mean, a legitimate fear of what they might do. But then their, you know, their civil rights were, you know, suspended. You know, we had two thirds of the Japanese Americans were American citizens, and they did not uh, have the due process of law. And so there's there are certain groups that are, are uh, victimized, and that shows up a certain level of even hypocrisy within. Mm-hmm. The American system
1: is that then part of is, I mean, is that equally as much part of an American way of war then? I mean, the, the identification of certain groups as being suspect.
2: I mean, you know, war creates stress in any society, mm-hmm. and every in any society, there are going to be some fault lines, either by class or race or gender or religion, and under the and the additional stress of war, sometimes these those other those underlying fault, social fault lines are exacerbated. Yeah. No, in the in terms of what happens pro and oh. Japanese Americans can see team tournaments. On the other hand, because so much of the male population is going into uniform, uh, the white male, white male population, I should say, add, it creates opportunities for African American males mm-hmm. in terms of uh, economic opportunities as well as women. Yeah. And one of the fascinating things that kind of kind of goes beyond the scope of our book is what happens to those groups after the war. Right. But these are part of what we're talking about here is kind of like the larger war and society issues that have become so prominent in the past generation of military history writing mm-hmm. and that we're trying to address as well as the operational and
0: strategic right. and so forth. And to follow up on what Matt says, uh, said you have the African Americans going into the military and there's a range of how African Americans are treated in the U.S. military. Uh, you know, the, the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, mistreating them most badly, and then um, African Americans attempting to win the double V, the victory against racism abroad and racism at home. And then, you know, the, the cadre of approximately one million African Americans who served in World War II mm-hmm. will then 15, 20 years later become involved yeah. with the Civil Rights Movement, which, again, to follow up on Matt says once more, this is why we should study war in the context of society, because you can look at the fault lines that break apart during the conflict, you can track them backwards to see what they were before, and you can see how they are uh, renegotiated right. after the conflict. Right. And when and World War II, the Civil War, any of the major conflicts do that. There is this renegotiation as an attempt to return to normalcy, but it's not—it's not—it's a new normalcy, mm-hmm. not a pre-war normalcy. Right? Yeah, kind of like a coming—you know—culminating. Question for the twentieth century
1: treatment. You know, we were in Second World War. Great deal of attention being drawn to historiography and in public discourse about the brutality of the war in the Pacific, based upon the John Dower thesis, uh, the first peers in war without mercy. You know, let's move beyond World War Two, though. I mean, is the war without mercy thesis strictly a World War II construct? Or does that also become something more systemic?
2: There are arguments in many conflicts that race was a, a factor in how religions treated each other. Right. But often you can find counter-arguments as well. Right. I mean, I've been around I'm thinking back to our earlier question about yeah. Yeah, but I believe mean it's Americans, too. Yeah. Uh, exactly. In fact, there are many people who argue that, you know, Native, the idea of race in early America did really really come about until, like, the 1700s. Right. Prior to that, the Englishmen really think of Indians as a race, and certainly the Native Americans didn't think of themselves as a race, that mm-hmm. something comes into being later. Uh, also, uh, with the treatments of Africans, African Americans, and slavery, you know that racial are some people claim that the race the idea of race comes into justified you know slavery in the American context, mm-hmm. um, and then later on, those racial prejudices can then be harped on to make you know conflict more intense. But some often con- intensive conflict might occur beyond any preconceptions of race, so yeah. it depends upon particular con- historical context, and it's kind of complex. Mm-hmm.
0: Kind of think of uh, the Vietnam War as an example of how complex things can be. You would have uh, a, a good chunk, a, a large percentage of African Americans who are drafted would be would see combat in Vietnam, mm-hmm. and you'd also have, you know, obviously Caucasian and other ethnic American ethnic groups within Americans that are kind of thrust together. Right. Um, in battle, the racial lines are not as uh, as hostile. The racial lines are not as uh, divisive during combat because you're fighting a particular enemy. Right. So you've got, all right, you've got blacks and whites fighting the Vietnamese. That's a particular lens that they would see the Vietnamese as other. Right. But that lens is not just a lens of seeing the other. It's also a lens that blinds uh, the Americans, for example, to the role of Vietnamese women during right. the war. So this this war without mercy and the racial or ethnic influences are seen throughout the 20th century, later in the 20th century, but then they also add blinders, for lack of a better term, where you're fixated on the male combatant, North Vietnamese or Viet Cong, and the Americans would miss the fact that there were a couple of million Vietnamese women who were carrying their body weight Uh on Ho Chi Minh Trail, working as saboteurs, spies, and even taking up arms. So there's... Uh uh, a sort of miscalculation based on American values where we want to project Americans want to project their values, their morality, their gender relations, their culture onto the enemy. Whether And, and the enemy doesn't necessarily uh, follow those kind of, right. uh, of right. cultural values. fact, balance. they have their own
2: cultural values, which may be in opposition. Yeah. <clears throat> One of those things I was thinking is that race does certainly explain in more intense violence in the Civil War uh-huh. cases like Fort Pillow you know, uh, Southern whites attacking, you know, attacking Union, Af- African-American soldiers. Uh-huh. This is kind of a fob to um, Greg Irwin at Temple, our, our advisor for Dave and I for a long time. So, at times, it's interesting, you know, yeah. what Dave's comments also go, talk about gender and cultural right. differences So, gender. And so race, gender, people have preconceptions. They have biases, yes. et cetera. Sometimes uh, they are created by conflict, Sometimes they pre-exist conflict and then shape expectations within it, depending upon historical contexts. Yeah.
0: And then we can look at, throughout the 20th century, there's, throughout the 20th century, there's been a fear, uh, there's been either a a latent or a a very blatant fear of the yellow peril, uh, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Japanese early 20th century or the Korean and the Chinese or the Vietnamese and so on, and there is a... You know, there's, again, there's kind of a, you know, uh, black and white or white and yellow perspective that all those people, the uh, East Asians or the, the Asians are going to fight the same way or have the same values and that sort of thing. So right. when you project, you know, the Japanese in, as an enemy, a conventional war, Koreans as an enemy, in a, or North Koreans as an enemy, in a conventional war, and Chinese in a conventional war, but then you get to Vietnam and it suddenly becomes an unconventional war right. with very different rules. And, uh, you know, again, these, these, these fault lines break apart, come back yeah. together, and then there's assumptions about the next conflict.
1: Does the American way of war of a problem with unconventional war?
0: Oh,
2: Well, um, there seems to be this view, this perspective, that after World War II, the American military became more enamored or was enamored with conventional warfare and at times ignored uh, due focus on unconventional war in Vietnam, and thereafter, and that has even lasted. People make that argument that it has persisted to the present day. Um, and there's this, and then the, the, the flip to that is all the emphasis on coin, uh, starting about 10 years ago or so. Counterinsurgency. Exactly, yeah. you know, we have to advance on coin, and coin, and there are arguments to that, saying that coin, John Gentile saying that uh, we can't just focus on coin, which is kind of like Tactics, operations, we have to look at the broader strategic goals of why we're in a particular place. That's my brief summation, but I'm going to turn it over to Dave, who I think knows a little bit more about this.
0: Conventional warfare, the warfare that the United States has become very good at over a couple hundred years, mm-hmm. is easy. It's easy concept- to conceptualize. We take the enemy capital, we kill the enemy in uniform, and we do so with massive firepower. Unconventional wars and counterinsurgencies, insurgencies, low intensity conflict—pick your pick your name for it—are messy and they're very, very complex. And I think that that's that's something that's difficult for not just the you know American military to get its mind around, but mm-hmm. any sort of conventional military that's going to fight one of those. I'm thinking of the Soviets in Afghanistan, right. for example. How do you get your mind around who the enemy is and who isn't? Who, who isn't the enemy during day and during night when the potential enemy all wear the same clothes and act right. the same way. And so I, I think that it's it's been it's been hard for the conventional perspective to be able to adapt to that. It's also more it's it's complex. And I also think Americans are driven <coughs> by this 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 faith in technology, faith in big business, faith in the the, the ability to, if we can just manufacture enough bombs, manufacture enough planes, then we will win the conflict because mm-hmm. we are, you know, the, in, the most powerful industrialized nation and perhaps in history. Mm-hmm. And so uh, kind of a, call it a Robert McNamara mentality, but you could see it in World War II and you yeah. could see it even uh, stretching to today.
1: Well, that, that strikes us as an undue trust in, Ameri- you know, patterns or pathways of American exceptionalism too.
2: Definitely,
0: definitely. Mm-hmm. That You know, nothing succeeds like success.
2: Um I just want to sort of, uh throw in that the issues of trying to grasp unconventional warfare, they're not just the problems of military leaders. Right. Unconventional wars, uh, the problems then are not the problems are not just military, they're social, cultural, the economic. Yeah. And so to prosecute any such war to success, you need to have civilian policies that are effective mm-hmm. and that are married to effective military policies. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a military no. problem and sometimes we often haven't had Civilian leadership that can conceptualize the issue and mm-hmm. come up with a you know an appropriate answer. Um, it's that's on both sides of the coin, civilian and military.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, let's bring it together.
1: You know, uh, you know, bringing the book to a close. You know, brings us to the end. You know, well, what what in the end is the American way of war in two thousand and fourteen? War has this way of looking at American military policy become too reductionist you know the past certainly offers lessons you know tells us about you know, for the present day it, it, but are we becoming perhaps too beholden to the past by
2: adopting such uh, you know, frameworks I never think we are beholden to the past I think the question is how accurately do we understand the past and its relationship to the present um, you can never make simple comparisons right We have to understand the past on its own terms, right? Um, There's always been unconventional war. Mm -hmm. Always. Uh, In my mind, actually, I think conventional war is actually a little bit more the minority if you look at all the conflicts in human Mm -hmm. history. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and unconventional war is not going to go away. um, But we can look at how other American societies as well as other societies have addressed with issues of unconventional war. And we can look at how Professional militaries, their ideas about fighting were conventional, unconventional, and sort of by looking at and thinking about and see if we can find some ways uh, to perhaps reconsider how America engages in and prosecutes conflicts in the future to the extent that, or
0: should America even prosecute some of these conflicts? should step back, uh, Dave? It's, it's, I think it's a tug and pull. I think on one level, the American ways of war, American way of war, singular, plural, I think, uh, pragmatism plays into it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, uh, the United States military has been able to adapt on the fly. Frequently, the United States military will lose the first battle, but then adapt on the fly. But at the same time, there can be uh, too much adaptation, or there can be too much traditionalism, and it's really hard to make a know, sweeping statement about the entire, even even the 20th century. But I think what needs to happen, and when the American way of war, quote unquote, works the best, if you yeah. want to say, is that there are people in the higher in, in the military hierarchy and/or political hierarchy that are able to voice differing opinions and be able to uh, offer uh, different solutions. So you don't have a situation where you have groupthink, for example, which becomes much too uh, much too uh, focused, much too centralized on a particular solution. But I, I think there's a, there's something there's pragmatism there, but sometimes there's also uh, kind of traditionalism that will hurt will hurt the American military. Sometimes it's said it's said it's a cliche. We're preparing to fight the next war by refighting the last war, yeah. and that can be a, pr- a problem too. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, that's gonna be the end of our discussion about ways of war, but I do have a couple of last questions that we ask our, our guests traditionally. Uh, first, who are you guys reading now? I mean, is there anybody who you know you like to share with our listening base that maybe they should read? Uh doesn't have to be about this topic. It can be about any any topic you're interested in.
0: Dave, you wanna start us? Sure. Uh... I am, uh, I've, I've been reading and thinking about uh, uh, engineer history, uh, U.S. Army combat engineer history, because I, I was the command historian for a few years, and so I'm, I'm thinking very much about how, and, and reading and thinking stuff very much about, how uh, armies travel on their stomachs, mm-hmm. and you need to be able to not only... Project force, but then supply force mm-hmm. and maintain uh, that that supply uh, process, that mm-hmm. supply line over time. And I learned from the engineers that they do that. And so I'm thinking of uh, it's a it's a classic book, but uh, uh, Janice uh, Giles, uh, Damned Engineers, mm-hmm. uh, which is very interesting about the Battle of the Bulge, uh, and then i'm reading a lot just to try to keep up with teaching too you know i'm, I'm <laughs> trying to uh, keep up with my uh, with my honors class so uh, that that's taking up a lot of my time right now okay All right. Uh-huh. uh, uh two,
2: there are two things on the top of my head i'll mention one is because most of my focus traditionally has been on older periods i actually did buy, buy robert gates's uh, autobiography it was time as secretary of defense right just to get a feel for the issues that have been affecting you know, the U.S. military over the past couple of years. Obviously, he left in 2011, if I'm correct. Right, 2011? 2011, 2011. Exactly. But also, it's a fascinating, like, since he was the only Secretary of Defense to serve both in a Republican and a Democratic administration, that's, that's kind of fascinating. Uh, the other one that's more akin to what I look at is uh, Wayne Lee's Barbarian Brothers, mm. which I'm looking mm. at because I might be... Uh, writing something in, that, in a similar vein later. Yeah. yeah, I reviewed that book. Oh, yeah, it's Sounds quarterly, yeah. Would you like to say anything about it? i a very a good book. i, uh, I say any book. Uh, for our readers who are not familiar with it, uh, Professor Lee's argument is that, well, the basic argument, it's a little more complex than this, mm-hmm. but the basic is that when opposing belligerents share some type of mutual culture, it serves to dampen the level of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some type of understanding of norms that either side generally will not violate. Sometimes they do, but if it's a violation, it generally reverts back to the norm of what's acceptable. When there isn't that type of cultural understanding, say, between uh, European settlers and Native American Indians, we say, uh, mm-hmm. there, when it's not there, the levels of violence can be much greater. Right. Um, and he what he does in Barbarians and Brothers is look at a number of different cases in the early English Atlantic. Um, right. 16th century Ireland, the English Civil Wars, and the 17th century. He looks a little bit about in North America. Actually, his examples are 15th, 17th century. Yes. Um, and then the Re- American Revolution are, yes. some, are um, examples.
1: Good, good.
2: And then I guess the last question that
1: right. I ask is, uh, what are you? what's next? Where are you, uh, in a few words, where are, you, where are you turning your attention to next?
2: Uh, well, as I said, I'm, I read... Uh, Professor Lee's work, because um, I was asked to to, uh, to write something on terror in the early modern world, and so what I'll probably be doing is taking a similar approach to Dr. Lee in terms of looking at these different examples, but looking at in initial incidences of terror. You know, what were the incidences that raised the level of violence to a much higher level uh, that then set the standards for later in terms of what either side should expect and how they treat each other. Right. Um, things like massacre of sixteen twenty two and the Pequot War in seventeenth right. century North America. Okay,
0: Dave. Uh, well, I'm I've uh, under contract to co-author uh, yet another survey on this time on American or on, on amphibious warfare, mm-hmm. and uh, this will be from antiquity to the present and won't be one damn amphibious uh, landing after another. My co-author Mark Vassell and I are conceptualizing <coughs> amphibious warfare. Uh, as broadly as possible, Dr. Fassell, an early modernist, believes that amphibious warfare up through the, industri- the beginning of the Industrial Age uh, was used for commerce, state building, um, imperialism, and a, gra- and a variety of other n- uh, non-military functions as well as military functions. Mm-hmm. And it's my period that, ironically, during the Industrial Age, amphibious operations, amphibious landings, focused mostly on uh, military and strategic uh, missions, and then now we're moving into the post-industrial, post-modern age, and I think we've come full circle now. Amphibious operations are not just military, but also humanitarian, um, you know, economic assistance, and a variety of other uh, other topics. And then we're also going to layer uh, Braudel and the anal School over the entire process to talk about the influence of geography and terrain and the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter how good your amphibious assault force is. If you can't find the right beach to land, then you're just not going to pull it off.
1: Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Dave and Matt, thanks a lot for taking the time to to join me here. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. And on uh, behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Bob Wintermute saying thanks for listening.